0: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of In Fellowship, the podcast where we explore community building through a chapter-by-chapter read of The Lord of the Rings. My name is Ellen.
1: And my name is Anna. And in today's episode, we're discussing Book 1, Chapter 7, In the House of Tom Bombadil, exploring how community is built through food.
0: Anna, are you eating any snacks today as we think about food and
1: this, uh, this chapter? Uh, I'm not currently eating any snacks, but I did have a fabulous lunch of just exceptionally delicious tacos. Mm. Um, and I was in good company as I had them. So I feel like their flavor was enhanced
0: mm, by the community that you were enjoying the food with.
1: That's exactly right. And you any any snacks for today's adventure?
0: One of my guilty pleasure snacks are those mozzarella sticks that come with the prosciutto wrapped around them already, sort of like an adult string cheese, and I consumed one immediately prior to starting this recording.
1: <laughs> it was delicious. Did you create any community in your recording closet? Uh, with you, yes, but otherwise I did eat
0: it alone in my closet. <laughs> Excellent.
1: Well, mm-hmm. you know, I think that uh, that also serves a purpose, right? To, to snack alone is sometimes to just really focus on the delicious flavors uh, and not worry about how silly you look while you eat your adult string cheese. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But
0: speaking of food and community, it is your turn to tell us a story. What story do you have prepared for us today?
1: Well, today I wanted to talk about our Oma, who is our great-grandmother on our mom's side, who is famous for cookies. Right around the winter holidays, Oma would often make a big thing, a big tin of cookies, and uh, for family gatherings, these were so celebrated. They were a big part of getting together, Um, There is something called pink eggnog, which was um, also incredibly famous and quintessential to the holiday experience for us. And as we were maybe less able to travel and see all of our family, as we grew and spread out across the country, Alma took it upon herself to also bake these cookies, put them in tins, and then ship them to family via the U.S. Postal Service. So by way of her kitchen and her love was creating this community to help make us feel like it was the holidays and we were together, even when we couldn't be. And this had such an indelible mark on the fam that really then someone started to write down these recipes and put them into a book. And so her recipes kind of carried on down in that way to other people who are interested in recreating that experience and that that holiday spirit. And so in this last year, as I was, you know, experiencing COVID and wanting to remain relatively productive, but also not being able to go out into the world and do things, I, like many others, turned to baking and cooking. And so I took the book of cookie recipes and was really starting to add some additional information, such as prep time, tips and tricks, substitutions for ingredients. Um, And so that's something that I've been kind of cooking through and revamping the recipes since holiday last, and have really enjoyed that experience, but also just kind of thinking about this as an homage. An homage to Oma. An homage to Oma. To really just kind of, like, celebrate how how intentional she was about creating that family experience, that closeness, and really trying to recreate that for my, you know, sort of newish family now that my partner and I are married and, and really trying to bring my in-laws into some of these more traditional celebrations that we have, while also then um, finding my own spin on them or, or sharing them and formalizing them and being able to really contribute something really feels like I'm adding to the legacy of these recipes. And so in that way, I really felt like we're building a pretty intentional community through delicious cookies and really what more could you ask for.
0: Right, and that you're 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 growing and welcoming new people into this cookie community family with these recipes that have been passed down
1: and and learning kind of along the way too. So, it's been so fun to try and create these recipes and then have to call grandma and get some insight <laughs> about like whether the eggnog is the right consistency, or frantically texting mom to try and understand, like, is this really tablespoons? That feels like a lot. Um, So even just through the cooking through the recipes, I've had some more frequent conversation about this topic with other women in our family and have really felt kind of that like connection and spirit through those spaces. And that feels really, really special.
0: Do you have a favorite Oma cookie recipe?
1: Well, I'll say two things about that. One is that Oma loved the color pink. And of course, you know that I have a food intolerance to red food dye. So a lot of the things that were quintessential to me as a child, I wasn't able to participate in and they became almost revered in my mind as these like, the pinnacle of Christmas was this pink eggnog and um, her raspberry meringues which were, they always looked so good, but I couldn't have any because I was allergic. So really my favorite then became the, they're like a a sugar cookie dough rolled in powdered sugar with like almonds. And they're, they're called Mexican wedding cakes, but they're also called maybe Russian tea cakes. I could have seen them called quite a few different things. And they're really yummy. And there's a lot of powdered sugar on them. And I really loved those as a kid. I thought those were pretty fabulous.
0: I have a ranking of my favorite oma cookies. Do share. Yes, I will. Thank you. (laughs) Number one is the raspberry meringue. And I have such a fond memory of the all of these cookies being laid out on the sideboard at Christmas, where they weren't required at the end of the meal, but rather were out and about and available for consumption from the moment you entered the house, which was very exciting. And the raspberry meringues were what I thought packing peanuts should taste like, <laughs> because they're kind of styrofoamy but delicious. And I'm like, this is, we everything should taste like this. They're my favorite. hmm
1: hmm
0: Number two, it's a list. Number two is the Mexican wedding cookies slash Russian tea cakes. And I liked them without the nuts. I remember she did some with nuts and some without, and I liked the ones without the best because they were the easiest to scarf. Same. Same. That's particularly why I like them. Right. I don't need protein in my cookies. I just need butter. That's right. And then the third one on the list is the Peppermint Twists. Mm -hmm. Um, But they weren't, they didn't taste like peppermint. They just looked like candy canes. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: I loved those visually and never really liked the way they tasted. But I remember each year being like, maybe this is the year that I'm now going to actually enjoy eating these cookies. Mm -hmm. But I was always fooled by how beautiful they were. And I also want to share that I had such fond memories of these cookies When I first moved to New York, I interviewed at a number of places and, you know, was just looking for the right job. And it was in uh, November and December when I was doing most of my interviewing. And I remember the job that I ended up getting and accepting. I walked in and interviewed during the day of their holiday cookie exchange. Mm -hmm. And one of the people working there who became later one of my favorite co-workers had made the Mexican wedding cookies Mm. and I just felt so like I wanted to be a part of this community you know there were only maybe eight to ten people working there at this time and they were all oh today's our holiday cookie exchange we're going to we all brought in cookies we're going to eat them in the conference room and write thank you letters to our donors and I desperately wanted to be a part of that almost exclusively because of the community around the cookie exchange. It was very Mm -hmm. formative in my decision to accept this job. So the cookies have really been a through line for me Mm -hmm. from childhood through now.
1: I think what we're learning here is that to the extent possible, if you're ever interviewing someone, be sure to have cookies, Mm, but also possibly bring your own cookies to interviews. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. No one is ever mad when they're eating dessert.
1: I fully agree. (laughs) That is a 100% accurate statement. (sighs) All right. So, Ellen, what happened in this chapter? Honestly, not a lot.
0: (laughs) Uh, It was mostly a lot of eating and telling stories we do meet Goldberry now, and apparently she's perfect, so congratulations, Goldberry. Frodo was literally stunned into silence by this woman. Mm-hmm. Goals. Yes, goals. And then they spend a night there at this house where they are told multiple times to heed no nightly noises, which I found to be incredibly ominous and freaked me out a little bit, you know?
1: Uh, yeah, there's nothing like being in a strange place and then being like, pay no attention to the creepy noises coming from outside your window, and you're like, hold up now, what?
0: Yes, it's like if you hear things around the house, that's fine, don't worry about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: and then, so they all have some interesting dreams while they are not heeding their nightly noises, and this is where Frodo has a vision of Gandalf trapped at Saruman's, which I had missed the last time I read this, so I wanted to draw all of our attentions to his dream. He doesn't know that it's Gandalf, but we, the reader, will learn later that it is Gandalf. Pippin has a dream of the Willow Man. Merry has a dream that he almost drowns in a bog, which... Is that alluding to the fight at the end of The Return of the King?
1: I wasn't sure. I was having a hard time understanding if that was sort of a fear from the you know travel across the river and then also with the with old man willow if it was just sort of a general fear based dream around like nature as a threat or if it was alluding to something specific because it it was it seemed more generic than the others and i wasn't able to tie it to a specific event that I knew was coming.
0: Right, because Frodo's visioning something that is maybe in the past at this point, as is Pippin. I guess we don't know timeline-wise if Gandalf has yet escaped, but we assume that he's trapped right now, right?
1: Right, and it's also a little unclear because we, the reader, as someone who's read the whole series, know this is what we're witnessing. But for a first-time reader, I don't think it would be clear that any of these are tied to real events, and I don't know if they're intentionally vague for those reasons or how the sort of tie-in happens later, if at all. So I'm curious to look for some of those connections later on.
0: Yeah, we'll see if a if a bog pops up that maybe we have forgotten about for poor Mary to potentially drown in.
1: Oh, is it... Is it the bog when Smeagol is taking them through...
0: No, because he's not there, right? Isn't that just... He's not there,
1: but also, you know, Frodo's dream isn't something that he's going to be present for either. So I'm not sure if it's just these, like, sort of ominous portences that are going to befall the team, or how each are having sort of these visions, because that's the only bog that I can think of the... Um, The dead marshes. Yes. Mm. Yes.
0: Interesting. Well, if that's true, then why does Sam have no dreams? He sleeps soundly through the night.
1: I think that's a question regardless, because Sam continues to be like the only one who does not have dreams, is not impacted by sort of the ominous aura around Old Man Willow he just continues to be a bit of a maverick and it's a little unclear as to why. Although it does feel like we're trying to sort of paint Sam as this like pure of heart, pure of um, intent, and that for those reasons, potentially, he's less negatively impacted by some of the more ominous forces at work. But I, I'm not sure where or how that's happening only for Sam, given all of the Hobbits seem like pretty chill people.
0: Yeah, I don't know, but I, I love that for him, and I am doing my best to pay better attention to Sam this time around. And it's true that he does seem to have sort of that pure of heart, maybe more fortitude than the rest, which is lovely. But speaking of people who are not affected by things, For me, the most notable part of this chapter was that we learn that Tom can wear the ring without becoming invisible, and that he can see Frodo while Frodo's wearing the ring, which to me was wild. And I know we don't get an explanation about it, but I thought that was pretty crazy.
1: Tom continues to be this sort of enigma as far as how old is Tom? What's Mm -hmm. Tom's relationship to the forest? Uh, and how really he has these sort of, not, not paranormal, but almost these, like, I was the first protozoa to climb out of the ooze kind of vibe like I am <laughs> older than the magic that yeah, is he being calls created here.
0: eldest. That's what he mm-hmm. says. He's like, "I, who are you, Tom? I'm Tom. I am eldest." Hm.
1: And I love the idea that there's this like universal being who's older than everything else and it's like my name's Tom. <laughs> Tom Bombadil. <laughs> okay, sure it is because that's what you would name someone who is, like, the first being, maybe, at least in this space. So bizarre, so interesting.
0: The last plot note I'm going to bring is insignificant, but it really tacks on to last week's episode of Tom Bombadil, Are We Creeped Out? The fact that the hobbits start referring to him as master, I find a little upsetting.
1: Yeah, it's unclear if that's I think the intent is that they're acknowledging his mastery of the elements or of the space. It's an attempt to kind of acknowledge his, his knowledge, but it comes across in this almost subservient way, which is a very interesting path to take for these four otherwise, again, very, like, strong and capable hobbits, though young and and new in their journey, it's not like they just don't have any skills at all. So it feels like it's a weird deference to show to Tom and a weird way of demonstrating that when Tom hasn't asked for it, right? Like, he's only ever introduced himself as Tom. So it's like, all right, we'll just, you know, chill with Tom then.
0: Right. Goldberry is the one who says that Tom Bombadil is the master. He is the master of wood, water, and hill, what she calls him,
1: which is fun. Which is a heck of a title. Yeah,
0: good nickname. So those are the plot outlines that I have for this chapter, mixed with a little bit of, and how are we feeling? Right. A little bit of
1: Tom Shade.
0: Yeah, a little bit of Tom Shade. And spoiler alert, I'm sure we'll have some more next week as well. But where did you see examples of today's theme in the chapter?
1: There were quite a few. I was quite snacky through this chapter because there are a lot of very rich descriptions of yummy-sounding food. One of the first examples that I saw was on my page 141, and Tom's first question in the chapter is to Goldberry about whether dinner is ready for the guests. And then he goes on to describe what is going to be presented for dinner so there is yellow cream honeycomb white bread and butter milk cheese and green herbs and ripe berries gathered is that enough for us tom asked is the supper ready so he's putting together a really lovely charcuterie board i should say goldberry is putting together a beautiful charcuterie board for the hobbits after traversing and surviving the old forest. So that was the first example that I saw.
0: As he starts to name those foods, my first thought is like, that is a brown meal. But then he does get to the green herbs and ripe berries. And I was like, oh, okay, it's not just butter and cheese and bread, which would be fine with me. But uh, as our parents say, you got to have some color on that plate.
1: Well, and let's hope that no one is lactose intolerant in this little journey group, because certainly they would not be enjoying this meal as much as you and I would.
0: I don't think hobbits have dietary restrictions. I think it just doesn't exist for them.
1: Certainly, we aren't clued into any throughout the books, that's for sure. No. No, we're not. There was another example where they just kind of talk about the, the meal itself. Still on that page, 141, where it says, The hobbits were seated at the table, two on each side, while at either end sat Goldberry and the master. we're to that again. And then it was a long and merry meal. Though the hobbits ate, as only famished hobbits can eat, there was no lack. So just kind of this idea that there is a surplus or maybe just the right amount of food for the guests that are there. And it's sort of restoring and replenishing their energy and their spirits. And so it's just kind of a nice, like, cozy picture that's being cultivated.
0: Yeah, I loved that.
1: So then I see that the sort of next example, right, comes shortly after that, where they talk about Tom feeding them breakfast the next morning and kind of hurries them along by threatening that they will not get any if they do not move.
0: I loved that part. I thought that was so funny.
1: (laughs) I am reminded of many a childhood (laughs) moment where you and I are both perhaps not moving at the pace that the parents were expecting. And so it's like, okay, well, if you're not going to move along here, you're not going to, there's not going to be any breakfast left. People are eating, like, let's let's get along here. Mm-hmm. So then the hobbits came soon and left the table late, and only when it was beginning to look rather empty. So again, there's sort of this cornucopia, this multitude of, of delicious foods to really sort of support the hobbits, and clearly, like, the hobbits have food as a love language. They're very focused on what's their next meal, having a good meal, and so it feels like they're really being cared for in that way with Tom and Goldberry.
0: Yeah, I'd like to jump in here with one of my examples, because I feel like you've teed it up very well by talking about both Tom and Goldberry. The next one that I have is on page 149, So shortly after what you've just talked about. And it's after they've been telling stories, and Tom says, quote, And let us have food and drink. Long tales are thirsty, and long listenings, hungry work, morning, noon, and evening. And after that, he jumps out of his chair and begins to dance around the table, and him and Goldberry together set up the table. And I liked that moment because I thought it showed a good partnership between these two people, who we assume are romantically involved living together. And I liked that Tom was an active part of this hosting and that the two of them together set the table and made the hobbits feel welcome.
1: Yes, and it feels very, again, cozy, but also very humble, right? You have these seemingly impossibly old or sort of wizened characters who like understand intimately the universe and the space about them and sort of these uh, magical or surreal elements that they interact with and yet they are in a very common and accessible way caring for hobbits who have otherwise and, and as is set up through the beginning of the book, you know, really not paid much attention to, you know, when Gandalf kind of says that most people don't pay attention to the affairs of hobbits, like, people don't get into hobbit lore, like, it just kind of feels like people really haven't paid a lot of attention to the this community. And yet Goldberry and Tom are really caring for in a very, like, intentional, very intimate way, these four travelers at kind of their base need, which I thought was really delightful.
0: Yes, and he ends with a bow to his guests, which again is a lovely thing to do to welcome somebody. So this is a person who is superior in magic to the hobbits and is still feeding them, being kind to them, and then bowing to them at the end and welcoming them to his table. Great hospitality.
1: Right, right. And then my last example is kind of on that same page where it talks about It was a supper even better than before. The hobbits, under the spell of Tom's words, may have missed one meal or many, but when the food was before them, it seemed at least a week since they had eaten. They did not sing or even speak much for a while and paid close attention to business, but after a time, their hearts and spirit rose high again, and their voices rang out in mirth and laughter. So I kind of like this image of the food being, again, sort of a base need, but also a way to lift their spirits and to be in sort of this community together. And I thought it was just kind of a really lovely, softer end to some of the very intense storytelling that Tom does over the course of an undetermined period.
0: It reminded me of our childhood, where at the end of a dinner meal, you sort of get the giggles. And then everything that happens after being well-fed is instantly more hilarious than when you're hungry at the beginning of a meal.
1: I really like that you said, in our childhood, because this also happened like six months ago when you came to visit me, (laughs) and I just, like, it was such a pleasant book ending of, you know, that was something that our parents had called our attention to, and then we were at my new house, dining with my partner. And we were kind of getting giggly at the end of the dinner, I think, that you had made for us. And it was just like kind of a lovely, soft moment.
0: (laughs) Food makes you happy. There's no other way to put it.
1: That's right. So those were my examples. Did you see anything else that uh, we didn't cover?
0: I had one from the first page of the chapter. So this is as they're meeting Goldberry. And it says, quote, and began to bow low feeling strangely surprised and awkward, like folk that, knocking at a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, have been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. And the part of that that I'd like to look more closely at is knocking at a cottage door to beg for a drink of water. And I thought a lot of how giving food to those in need is a way to build community. There are some people that I know here in the city who are doing food rescue and going to collect uneaten food from restaurants, from catered events, and then bringing those to the places of most need here in New York. And there is a community around that. And them coming to knock at the door brought some of those real-life moments to my mind.
1: Yes, it's a very humble position to be in right because it's a very functional need to need both water and food so if you come in a moment of needing one or both of those items often that's our threshold to say this person is in the most dire need of care and so to come in that way really I think says says a lot about the position that the hobbits are in at this moment where they've Just been sort of snatched from a very intense situation, saved, and now are going to be cared for very intentionally and very lovingly in a way that, you know, a a mom or a guardian cares for a dependent in kind of that way.
0: Yes, food is care. And I think that ties well back to the story that we heard earlier today. That's right. Well, thank you, Anna, for that lovely discussion. I'm so ready to put Tom Bombadil behind us.
1: Yeah, amen to that.
0: (laughs) In the meanwhile, do you have an action item for us today from this chapter?
1: I do. And apropos of our conversation earlier about interviewing and bringing treats and creating community, here is my challenge to all of you listeners, is to create lembus bread which we will get to later in the books so if you're reading it for the first time don't feel confused we're gonna get there but ultimately this lembus bread is meant to be a snack that you take when you're traveling to help satisfy you it's supposed to be pretty um pretty solid as far as sustenance and nutrition it's basically
0: the cliff bar of the lord of the rings
1: it is And so if you go to the internet and uh, search for Limbus Bread, there are all kinds of recipes available. Some that are more complex and and require ingredients that may not be your normal at home ingredients, but I found one that was very simple. And so I um, am going to share that with you now. The ingredients that you need are one cup of butter, one half cup brown sugar, or one quarter cup honey, and two cups unbleached flour. So the instructions are these. Preheat your oven to 325 degrees. Then cream together the butter and sugar or honey, whichever you chose. Add the flour and mix until thoroughly incorporated. Put out on a surface and knead until it's pretty smooth, maybe about five minutes or so. Adding a bit of flour to make sure that the dough isn't sticking to whatever surface you're using. Then roll it out to about a quarter inch thickness and cut into three to four inch squares. And then you're gonna wanna score halfway through each square with a butter knife. And then you're gonna take those squares, put them on a buttered cookie sheet, and bake for about 20 to 25 minutes or until lightly golden brown. And then when they are done, take them out and share them with someone start a conversation about lord of the rings or other topics potentially this podcast and create some community around lembas bread
0: thank you for that i think we can put that recipe maybe in the show notes and also on our twitter account so folks who are following us online and want to read along with the recipe can do so But I am excited to give that a try. That doesn't sound too terribly difficult for a recipe. So thank you for not picking something like croissants that need uh, a lot of extra work.
1: Yes, there were a couple others that were more in the vein of a health bread where it involves chia seeds and mashed bananas and all different kinds of ingredients that I didn't have in my pantry. So, if those are more interesting to you because you're looking for a healthier option or something that has perhaps just more to the recipe, there are plenty out there for you to find. But I felt like this was a good entry point for folks who may not be as comfortable in the kitchen, and that most folks have these items maybe easily accessible in the pantry.
0: I love it. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: Today's podcast was brought to you by Fair Lady Goldberry, the Fair River Daughter. Our music is by Robert Zahn and Simon Dahm. If you have thoughts on today's episode or homework assignment, send us a voicemail or email at infellowshippodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to take care of your community, stay hydrated, and thank you for joining us today in Fellowship.
0: He is somebody who is superior in magic to these people and is still, as you say, showing deference. Well, you didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I was remembering earlier when you said deference and I was like, yes. That word. Find the common thread. Um, Nailed it.